0: This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service dedicated to bringing you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, we talk about two mystery murders, true crime stories from more than a century ago that have never been solved. The first takes place in 1874 when an unknown assailant attacked and murdered a family of five with an axe in rural Illinois. The second tale takes place in Texas a decade later. At least eight people were brutally murdered with an axe in 1884 and 1885, and the murderer was never caught. Several years later, murders in England would lead some to speculate that the killer in London and Austin may be the same man, Jack the Ripper. And now let me welcome the History Guy.
1: Any good student of history will tell you that truth is often stranger than fiction. People pay money to go see scary movies, to experience that thrill when the murderer jumps out of the woods wielding an axe. But when the movie's over, we comfort ourselves saying that things like that don't really happen. But in one small southern Illinois town in 1874, an axe-wielding horror came out of the darkness, terrified the town, and just as quickly disappeared back into the darkness, just like out of a movie. The Saxtown Axe Murders of 1874 are barely remembered today, but in their day they made headlines throughout the nation. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The small southern Illinois town of Saxtown was a farming community where people primarily spoke German. Its residents were immigrants from Germany, fleeing the Napoleonic Wars, famine, or other hardships. In the U.S. they could own and farm their own land, a privilege that many were denied in the Old World. The farmers lived in wooden cottages, separated from each other by miles, in some cases. Life in the community was primitive. There was no police department, no library, no bank. Farmers kept what cash or valuables they had in their homes, until they could make a trip to the bank to deposit them. The closest town with these types of amenities was Belleville, the St. Clair County seat, almost nine miles north of Saxtown. The community was largely closed to outsiders and private. But within the community, everyone knew everybody else's business. For example, according to author Nicholas Pister, Carl stiltson the patriarch of the stiltson family, was a known alcoholic. On his dark days, Sextown residents could find Carl wandering the muddy roads, muttering to himself in German about events long past. Stiltzenreed had immigrated with his wife, Maria, from Hille, Germany, in the 1840s, after his house was destroyed twice, first by an unknown arsonist and second by an errant lightning strike. They'd lost three children to disease in Germany, and only one child, a boy named Fritz, lived to adulthood. Carl and Maria must have hoped their luck would turn around in the New World. After a two-month trip across the Atlantic, their ship sailed up the Mississippi River from New Orleans and stopped at St. Louis, Missouri. It was a booming city on the river, suffering from clouds of coal dust and occasional outbreaks of disease, mainly caused by drinking contaminated river water. Mark Twain, the American author, described St. Louis as a filthy place. The coal smoke used to bank itself in a dense, billowy black canopy over the town, and hide the sky from view. His opinion of the people dwelling there wasn't much better. Twain wrote, If you send a damn fool to St. Louis, and you don't tell him he's a damn fool, they'll never find out. After seeing the dirt, the filth, the treatment of slaves in St. Louis, the Stilson Reeds decided to cross the river and move instead to southern Illinois. They settled in Saxtown, a place mostly populated by other German immigrants. They planted wheat, corn, oats, they raised pigs as well as cattle, and like other residents of Saxtown, they mostly made their own clothes and their own tools. They had seemingly left the shadows of the old world behind. The family did so well that they began lending money to their neighbors, generating even more income on the interest. But not everyone took the loans, because Carl Reed could be a quarrelsome lender. For example, he fought with his own brother over an inheritance, and the two remained estranged for the rest of their lives. Maria, Carl's wife, died in 1866, but she had nearly 20 peaceful years in the New World. The Reed's son, Fritz, married a local woman named Anna. In 1868, they had two children together. The younger couple took over management of the farm from the elder Carl, who continued to live with them and to drink. And his brother, Fred Bolts, took a handful of loans from Carl but had trouble repaying them. Though the Bolts farm was close to the Stilton Reeds, the families were not close because of the money and Carl's attitude. In March 1874, the roads in and out of Saxtown were nearly impassable from the spring rains, and a deep layer of muck prevented easy travel. At a farm auction at nearby High Prairie on Thursday, March 19th, Carl Stilton Reed carried a willow basket which, residents speculated, Was filled with money, supposedly from a recent inheritance. He offered anyone at the auction up to eight hundred dollars in loans, but no one bit. Ben Schneider, one of the Stilton Reed's neighbors, however, bought some potato seedlings from Carl and was told to pick them up at the Stilton Reed's the following day. No one suspected that it was the last time Carl Stilton Reed would be seen alive. The next day, around 5 p.m., Schneider went to pick up his purchase at the Stilton Reed's and was puzzled by the silence he discovered at the farm. The Stilton Reed's new dog, Monk, was barking from inside the farmhouse, and the cows hadn't been milked. He called for Fritz, the younger Stilton Reed, but no one came out of the house. When Schneider pushed open the farmhouse door, he beheld a grisly scene that reporters would later label as the biggest crime to happen in America since the murder of Abraham Lincoln. The five members of the Stilton Reed family were dead. The bodies of Carl, Fritz, Anna, and their two children, a three-year-old and an eight-month-old baby, lay in pools of blood. The members of the family had been killed by bludgeoning, by having their throats cut, or by a vicious attack with what appeared to have been an axe. Three severed fingers lay in the middle of the floor. Karl stiltsenried had been struck so hard that his head was nearly severed from his neck. Anna was dead in bed with her two children, the baby laying on her chest. Schneider ran screaming for help. Carl Stilton Reed's willow basket was found inside the house empty. No one knows if it ever really contained money. The nearby farmers came quickly as the news spread and guarded the gruesome scene until the sheriff could arrive from Belleville. They covered the family's corpses with sheets. The citizens of Saxtown knew the state of the roads in and out of town. Chillingly, they believed the killer was still among them. Neighbors suspected neighbors. George Schneider, the brother of Ben Schneider, the man who had stumbled on the scene, was so disturbed by the murders, he fainted rather than entering the house. But George Schneider was a butcher, so the citizens were wondering why he was so affected by the gore. Had he been responsible for the killings? A few days before the murders, George Schneider had sold the Stilton Reeds their Newfoundland dog. The whispers increased. How had the killer managed to lock the guard dog in a back room, unless it had known that person? Another resident, George Killian, who was a miner by trade, entered the home and asked the sheet be taken off of Anna's corpse, saying, Let me see how bad her head is hammered out of shape. The whisper started again. How had George Killian known what the body looked like? Cuts in the frame of one of the doors of the Stilton Reed's house indicated that the axe had been wielded by a left-handed man. How many of the residents of Saxtown were left-handed? John Afkin, an itinerant farmhand who was particularly skilled with his axe at removing tree stumps from the ground, didn't bat an eye when his neighbors described the Stilton Reed's bodies to him. Why was he so unperturbed, they whispered, when he had known the family well, working a few seasons with them? Afkin was strong enough to do the deed, and he cut stumps from the ground equally well with both his left and right hands. One of the many rumors about the murders, that was not reported in the papers at the time, and so we have to question its veracity, is that Carl Stiltenry died with a hank of red hair in his hand, probably ripped off the head of the man who was attacking him. Afkin had bright red hair. There were boot prints in the yard and a trail of blood that led away from the home. The residents followed it and found bloody tobacco leaves along the trail. Throughout history, tobacco leaves have been used for pain relief and the healing of cuts. The killer must have injured himself, the residents declared. Clues were beginning to come together. They were looking for a left-handed man with maybe a wound. Like bloodhounds on the scent, they continued to follow the trail and discovered that the nearest farm to the bloody tobacco leaves was owned by Fred Bolts, the deceased woman's brother and one of the men who had fought with Carl Stilton Reed over his loans. Sheriff James Hughes arrived and began an investigation, starting with the crime scene itself. According to later reports, Hughes came outside of the Stilton Reed's home and said to the crowd, I think it is the most revolting crime that I have ever seen or heard of. It would be the most high-profile case of his career. This was an era before the development of forensic science, before fingerprinting was used, before crime scene photography. All Hughes could base his case on were the clues he could find with his eyes or glean from the rumors swirling around the community. Newspaper reporters followed the sheriff into the small town. Newspaper headlines described the Illinois horror, A German newspaper printed in Belleville called it the Graunhofter Mord, German for gruesome murder. Reporters were tasked with getting as much information as they could out of Saxtown as quickly as possible. The Stilson Reed's name was misspelled or written phonetically in many of the publications. Communication was not only bogged down by the distance the small town was from St. Louis, but also by the fact that most of its citizens spoke only German. The reporters played fast and loose with the names and ages of the family. Speculation ran rampant. Was it one killer or two? What was the motive? Meanwhile, their readers waited breathlessly for the next development. Sheriff Hughes at first thought the deed was done by one killer, and it was a crime of passion rather than for money. He pointed some cash left in the house, a proof of his reasoning. Hughes interviewed Fred Bolts, who along with Carl Stilton Reed's estranged brother, stood inherit from the dead family. Hughes looked for injuries on Bolts, but found nothing. He and his deputy searched the Bolts farmstead for top to bottom, but found no bloody clothes or weapons. Hughes didn't arrest Bolts right away, but demanded the man come to the coroner's inquiry. The coroner's inquiry revealed a surprise. The coroner believed the Stilton reeds had been killed not just with an axe, but also a knife. He also believed two men were responsible for the crime. The coroner wondered how one man could have used two weapons quickly enough to kill a family of five. Bolts and Afkin were arrested for the murders, but a grand jury was unable to indict them for lack of enough evidence, so they were released. In all, eight people spent time in jail accused of the murders, but there was not enough evidence to indict any of them. Two separate thousand-dollar rewards were offered by St. Clair County and Carl's estranged brother for information leading to the capture of those responsible. Private investigators and the curious swarmed the area, looking for information to collect on the reward. In reality, they probably muddied the waters with crazy theories more than they helped. Despite the attention and the money, which was substantial for the time, the killers were never found. Boltz eventually filed suit against the Stilson Reed estate to get what he could. He was awarded $400, packed up his family, moved to Nebraska, and changed his name. The rest of the estate went to Carl Stilson Reed's estranged brother. The the people of Saxtown built coffins for the family and buried them there in Saxtown. Years later, a family member paid to have an obelisk erected in a cemetery in Belleville, but when officials came to move the bodies, the locals wouldn't let them be moved. They believed that they had been desecrated enough, and so they remained buried in unmarked graves. The people of Saxtown argued over who did the killings for the next... Hundred years, eventually families started suing each other to try to protect their reputations, having been repeatedly accused of murder. It's said that for years after, detectives would hide under the beds of dying people hoping to hear a deathbed confession that would finally break the case. Perhaps the most terrifying part of the entire story is that the murderer or murderers were never found. Complicating the effort for modern detectives is the fact that the original case file disappeared in the 1890s. The Stilson Reed home was finally torn down in 1954, although a barn built by the Stilson Reed family is still standing today. People who live on the property still claim that they hear ghostly noises at night, sounds like doors opening and closing and a dog barking. And they claim every year on the anniversary of the murder, they hear a knock at the door.
0: Now is the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. (laughs) We have a special guest this week on the podcast, Heidi. Heidi. She is married to the history guy, and she's been involved in the channel since the very beginning of it. She writes many of the episodes you watch on the channel, and she had just so happened to write both of the episodes that are on the podcast today. And so we're happy to be able to have her insight. People may not know, but we actually have a number of writers for the channel.
1: Yeah, I, I don't write everything. It's not a one-man show. Uh, we have a few people, and it's mostly people we know quite well, that we think really understand the voice of the channel, who write episodes for us. And of course, that includes you, who now, I think, has the title, Chief Writer for the History Guy, Senior Writer. What title are we using? And, <laughs> uh, like and you write many of the episodes today, but also Heidi's written many of the episodes and many of our most popular episodes. And I really like that, uh, not only because it shares the workload, because it would be very difficult if I was writing all the episodes to produce two, you know three episodes a week, an episode every other day, but also because... Because uh, you guys pick topics sometimes that I wouldn't necessarily have picked. And it's great to have multiple voices. And it gives us not just a greater breadth of what we discuss, but also how we discuss that. It gets different voices in that are still true to the whole vision of what we do with the history guy.
2: And I also think it, it lends itself to what makes the history guy so popular is because if, for example, you find a certain episode uninteresting, well, you might see uh, an episode by a different writer and you might think, well, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. And so it's, uh, I think it, it broadens our appeal. At The History Guy, uh, we find the topics that we write about in a variety of places, but my favorite as a former librarian and a voracious reader uh, is the bookshelf. The two episodes we're gonna talk about today um, I read uh, a book about each topic and I found it absolutely fascinating. So I wanted to um, give a little bit of credit to those authors. Um, the the Saxtown murders, I read uh, The Axe Murders of Saxtown, the Unsolved Crime That Terrorized a Town and Shocked the Nation um, by Nicholas Pistor. Now, that was published in January 2014 by Lions Press. I enjoyed it very much. And the cool thing about the books is that they can get into a level of detail that at the History Guide, because we've only got a short amount of time there's only so much we can talk about um so sometimes when you read a book about these topics it lets you take a deep dive get into the really you know uh nitty-gritty of the information that we don't have time to talk about here on the channel um and the other one interestingly enough, gives the other name used by the press for The Servant Girl Annihilator, and that was The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth, uh, which was published in April 2016 by Henry Holt and Company. And I was really drawn to that title uh, by that bump, you know, first serial killer. Um, and that kind of leads into a discussion we have later on the podcast about a potential connection to Jack the Ripper. Um, but this was the first time that we were seeing uh, a crime of this nature in the united states and that idea really captured my imagination i've uh, reviewed other history books on my blog um it's the help desk book blog and it's online and you can find me we've linked it through um, the historyguy.net
1: if you are interested in miss history guy and all you know the great stuff that she's written for the history guy you can see a lot of that by going to the book blog uh, i'm a big fan me too i really
0: recommend it and she doesn't read just history stuff she reads other stuff as well but i, I enjoy reading all of the reviews Stories like this one are macabre and disturbing, but also for many, deeply interesting. True crime, of course, is a really popular genre today, but the questions with crimes this old are the same, even if the answers may never be found. Well, what do you think makes people seek out stories like the Saxtown murders?
2: Well, this is a question I've wondered about for a long time. Um, Prior to working with Lance on The History Guy, I was a reporter, a journalist for a local paper here in town, and some of the most popular stories I ever wrote were archival pieces about um, unsolved cases um, in particular, and unsolved murder uh, that happened uh, in Southern Illinois. And I think the reason why it's so popular, if you think about, you know, television shows like Unsolved Mysteries and and things like that, there is not only uh, this feeling like, well, you know, maybe maybe I know the clue, you know, to unlock this decades old mystery. You know, I don't know why we feel that, uh, because I know I've always sort of felt that when I'm when I'm watching shows about true crime. But also, I think. I think we see ourselves in these people and things that happened in the past. It's a way I really feel like the past comes alive in true crime stories. Um, and, and maybe that is because of, of, you know, the visceralness of it or the darkness of it. It's a way that history becomes human. And so that's part of the appeal in my mind. Um, what do you think, Lance? Yeah, I think
1: you can talk about all sorts of psychological reasons uh, You know that it might have to do with fear or safety. Uh, I mean, I, I, but I mean, there's just a, and you know, there's a reason that people watch train wrecks, Uh, but I I, I think that that anything that's unsolved regardless of murders or whatever is just kind of, it's interesting because it it challenges the brain. And again, as a point of history, if you're watching movies or television or film, everything's solved. Uh, But in reality, it's not There's a lot of mysteries out there. And that's one of the reasons that history can be more compelling maybe than fiction.
0: I really I really liked uh, Heidi's line about how it makes history more human because I think that we all understand being afraid and mm. the the fear that this kind of stuff might happen and we want to believe that you know it won't happen even though these folks died you know in the 1870s we still we can still relate to them on a, on a level in a very human level we want to be able to give them justice
2: well okay. and especially with the the um... You know, the axe murders of Saxtown, Um, the physical location where that happened is less than 20 minutes from our house here in Southern Illinois. So if you want to talk about, you know, yeah, literally being able to put ourselves in their mm-hmm. shoes, if I walk out into my backyard and close my eyes, uh, you could feel it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, this was this is the world hasn't changed all that much. It's a very, uh, very humbling experience. It's
1: part of our research for this episode, we went to the uh, cemetery and yeah, saw the, saw yeah. the marker. And that's, so that's another compelling reason, I guess, is that because the murders weren't solved, that means that these people, these victims could be forgotten and, you know, they deserved to be remembered.
0: And despite everything they had, you know, the evidence, this was a fairly close-knit community, the discovery of the bodies. So really so soon after the crime, they never found the killer. And that's both frightening and of course, makes you want to be able to solve it. And I think that people want to be able to believe that even even now when you hear all the pieces of the story that you could solve it and that the story could have a conclusion. Do you think it's even possible to solve a crime like this after so long?
2: I think not unless something very extraordinary happened. Uh, for example, like the great-great-grandchild of the murderer found a confession note or something, you know, uh, tucked away somewhere. Uh, yeah. We have to remember that when these murders happened, there was no, uh, system in place for these things to be investigated. Um, reporters, uh, for major newspapers would walk through crime scenes, literally, you know, looking at the blood on the ground and touching things and moving things around. Wow. Um, you know, police forces weren't as highly, uh, organized or trained, you know, perhaps as they are now. So there was no method of <laughs> figuring out what happened other than saying, oh my gosh, everybody's dead. Um, I wouldn't say nothing is impossible, but it would have to be a one in a million uh, chance, I think, to solve it.
0: Yeah, some more more recent crimes. You know, they they keep evidence and stuff. But, you know, we don't have crime scene photos or that we all we have in terms of trying to solve it is the the information that was written down. And that's you can't find new information that maybe they
1: missed. Yeah, I think it's it's likely too late that there's ever going to be a break in this case. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't realistically say that, but there are much older historical mysteries that we are still finding information that helps us to understand those mysteries. So one of the things that's compelling about history is that uh, whenever you have A question that's unanswered, it gives you a reason to keep seeking those answers. Mm. And so I, I don't know that we're going to solve this case, but it does become a great illustration of history that says that you never you never stop looking. And that's another reason that history deserves to be remembered.
0: Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and we'd like to thank them for continuing to make these podcasts possible. Of course, we are always watching stuff on Magellan TV. What have you been watching lately?
2: Well, Lance and I watched this one about Rubens, the painter.
1: He's famous for a lot of things as a painter, but it's it's really interesting to see how culture at the time, especially where he was, you know, in the, in the Netherlands, it impacted his fame, his wealth, what he was able to paint, and it led to these these huge paintings that are so famous. And it, it gives historical context to it. And you know, one of the great things about Magellan, one of the reasons that I love it so much is you can find documentaries on all kinds of stuff. If you're looking for true crime, they got true crime. And if you're looking for stuff on the world wars, they got tons of stuff on the world wars. If you're looking for ancient stuff, they got that ancient stuff. And you can get down to real granular details if you want to look at something really specifically. But there's also a lot of uh, of their videos go to like broader concepts. And if you want to just learn something, you can just go to Magellan and just flip through and you will always find something. Wherever you go, you can find something interesting. And that's just one of the reasons that we really love our subscription.
0: My wife and I were watching one on, it was an unsolved set of murders in the 1990s. They were strangling murders in Cape Town. And it was, there was something like 20 people that died and it's still unsolved, and they had only one only one guy that they thought was a possible suspect, and he they just weren't able to bring enough evidence, so he got out on it. And it's it fits in really well with these episodes that we're talking about today. You have to wonder, that one's so much more recent, you hope we still can find whoever was the perpetrator. That's one of the great things about Magellan, like you said, there are all kinds of true crime. A lot of times that true crime crosses into history. We have a special deal for subscribers to The History Guy if you go to... Try.Magellantv.com slash History Guy. There will always be a deal there for people who want to subscribe, and we very highly recommend it. There's
1: always something new to watch. Try.Magellantv.com slash History Guy.
0: Next, the History Guy will talk about the story of the Servant Girl Annihilator, one of the first serial killers in the United States who murdered at least eight people in Austin in the 1880s. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us talk a little more with the History Guy.
1: It was December 24th, 1885, and the city of Austin, Texas was in a panic. Two women had been found, murdered in their yards, their bodies bearing grisly wounds. They were the seventh and eighth victims of a madman, a killer who had begun their killing spree the year before. The, the, The murderer would commit their grisly crimes and then seemingly just disappear into the night, only to reappear later and further terrorize the city. When a mere three years later, the city of London, England was terrorized by a series of murders, newspapers in Texas speculated that the Austin murderer, who had been dubbed the Servant Girl Annihilator or the Intangible Menace by the American press, might have migrated to the old world to become Jack the Ripper. The murderer in Austin is thought to be among the first serial killers in the United States. It is history that shouldn't be forgotten. Prior to 1884 the future of Austin had been looking bright. The city was the new capital of what prior to that time had been the Republic of Texas. In 1838 the capital had been moved from Houston to Austin. The new location was chosen because it was further west which was considered the future and also because of its natural beauty. The sunsets were said to be so vivid in Austin that it was called the City of the Violet Crown for the way the light reflected off the hills. Cotton and cattle created an economic boom in Texas, and Austin saw an influx of residents and businesses in the late 1800s. Between 1860 to 1880, U.S. census records show that the population of Austin grew from around 3,500 people to more than 11,000. The city boasted a university, numerous shops, churches, and a luxury hotel where every room had its own indoor toilet. Near the town limits, there was a state-of-the-art asylum called the Texas State Lunatic Asylum. At the facility, the troubled residents of Austin were cared for by the director, Dr. James Given. He practiced the latest ideas in the care of patients by building paths that curved instead of running straight, because it was believed to be more soothing to the mind. He also tore down the high fence surrounding the property and built a simple low enclosure, because he didn't want the patients to feel trapped. The jewel in Austin's crown was the construction of a new state capitol building, with its cornerstone placed March 2nd, 1885. When construction was completed three years later, the government leadership of Texas declared the building was the seventh-largest building in the world. Some historians estimate that it is more than 30 feet taller than the United States Capitol building and larger than the English Parliament buildings were at the time. This booming growth and development made everyone believe Austin's best times were on its way, which made what happened next all the more surprising. Tom Chalmers was visiting his brother-in-law in Austin when he was awakened during the night of December 31st, 1884, by someone calling for help and knocking on the front door. Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of Molly Smith, who was a servant for the household, had blood streaming down his face. He said he'd been attacked in the servants' quarters in the backyard and needed help. Walter said he didn't know what had happened to Molly, but they had been attacked by a shadowy man. Thomas thought Spencer was either drunk or exaggerating and told him to go find a doctor and shut the door. Spencer, a black servant, knew better than to argue with a white man. He went to a doctor and had his wound treated and then went home. In the morning, the body of Molly Smith, covered in blood, was found in the alley. Her room in the service quarters was a rack. In the corner was a blood-covered axe. A blood-stained handprint was near the door. Unfortunately, it would be years before forensic science would make use of fingerprints, originally called finger marks, to identify suspects of crimes. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene where they sniffed the evidence and milled about, seemingly confused by the copious amounts of blood. They were unable to find a trail to follow. Everything about this murder was confusing to the authorities who came to investigate. First of all, there seemed to be no clear motive. Usually crimes committed in Austin were crimes of passion or opportunity. This was something else. The police first examined Walter Spencer, Molly's boyfriend, who was known around town as a conscientious and careful laborer. Molly's friends said their relationship was a happy one. They didn't believe he would have killed her. A previous boyfriend was arrested for suspicion of murder, but he was released when his alibi checked out. The manner of wounds on Molly's body was shocking. Domestic violence and drunken brawls weren't unknown in Austin. In fact, when Elizabeth Custer, wife of George Armstrong Custer, saw Austin, she wrote to a friend, Jayhawkers, bandits, and bushwhackers had everything their own way. The lawlessness was terrible, but Molly's murder was gruesome. The investigation led nowhere and servants across the city began to sleep in at the houses of their employers or friends. Nothing else happened for a time and everyone calmed down as Austin moved into the new year. But then in March, servant girls across the city began to be harassed at night. Rocks were thrown at windows. In a few instances, someone shot a pistol through a wall. A German immigrant told authorities she was grabbed in the darkness by a man and told, Your money or your life. Her assailant hit her in the head with something sharp. She screamed and was able to escape. Then a cook was awakened from a deep sleep by her doorknob being shaken violently. She said she looked out the window, but no one was visible. Down the street, two young black servants were awakened by the same thing. Someone was trying to get in the door. One of them opened the door to see what was going on and said she was grabbed from behind. She screamed, alerting her employer, a man who had fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy. He came running out with his gun, and the attacker vanished. These strange nightly attacks and harassment continued. But then, on March nineteenth, eighteen 1885, Clara Strand and Christine Martinson, two servant girls from Sweden, were attacked and seriously hurt. Like the others, they were assaulted in the night, and then their assailant shot through the window of their home and hit one of the girls in the spine. At this point, servant girls across Austin were packing up and heading somewhere else. Racial tensions in the city became evident as the white citizens blamed black men for the attacks. One Austinite wrote a letter to the editor that said, And if one of the scoundrels who has been out shooting and scaring our servant girls can be caught, let him be strung up on a limb or lamp post without mercy or delay. William Sidney Porter, an Austin resident who would go on to become the famed American author with the pen name O. Henry, wrote to a friend that Austin was fearfully dull except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively during the dead hours of the night. The black residents of Austin, who were mainly the victims of the attacks, pushed back with the belief that they were being targeted by a deranged white man. They slept with furniture blocking the doors and windows so that the madman couldn't get in. They also crafted charms and necklaces to avoid the killer's evil eye. When Eliza Shelley was murdered on May 6th, her body was found next to the bed where her children had slept with her. One of Eliza's sons told police that he had been awakened in the night by a man who told him to go back to sleep. He told police his mother had been killed by a black man, but other witnesses to the killings would disagree with that testimony, saying the man was white. The killing spree continued later in May of that same year, when Irene Cross, a black cook, was found in her backyard, severely injured. She was still alive for hours after the attack, and the authorities desperately asked her, Who did this to you? Unable to answer because of her injuries, Irene died of her wounds. City authorities admitted their inability to solve these perplexing crimes and hired detectives, first from the Noble Detective Agency of Houston, and then the Pinkerton and Company United States Detective Agency of Chicago, but neither agency made headway in the case. The New York Times reported that nearly every man in the city, black or white, known to have idiosyncrasies of any kind, had been watched by the detectives. More than 400 suspects, mostly black men, were arrested, Some, according to the New York Times article, subjected to very severe examinations, but none could be proven to be the killer. Tensions increased in Austin when Mary Ramey, Gracie Vance, and Orange Washington were killed in August and September. Mary Ramey had been only 11 years old and with her mother when the killer struck. Similar to the first murder of Molly Smith, most of the women were severely injured or had sharp objects inserted into their ears or skulls, and most of the women who had been attacked were black. One of the biggest clues to the killer's identity was a strange footprint which had been left near the scene of some of the crimes. The murderer changed tactics on Christmas Eve that year when he murdered two white women, Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips, within a few hours of each other. Men started staying awake all night with guns in their hands in an effort to protect their family. Austin hired a dozen more police officers who patrolled the streets at night. Businesses led a booming trade in window locks and other primitive security systems, while medicine shops sold tonics to calm the hysterical women of Austin. The story made national paper headlines. The New York World's headline read, Those extraordinary and similar assassinations of women at Austin. Facts as marvelous as the most extravagant fiction. The reporter labeled the killer the intangible nemesis. He wrote, I do not believe any man figures in the world's history with such a terrible and horrifying distinction from the rest of humanity. He may well give history a new story of crime. The first instance of a man who killed in order to gratify his passion. Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock's husbands were both arrested on suspicion of murder. Moses Hancock was found not guilty. But the trial of Eula Phillips' husband, James Phillips, was more of a scandal. Eula Phillips had been considered one of the most beautiful women in Austin. A witness who ran an establishment that catered to quick liaisons testified that Eula was meeting men at her business and actually appeared there mere hours before she was found murdered. This revelation affected the careers of some prominent Austin politicians when the witness said some of the men Eula had been meeting were from the Austin city clerk's office. In addition to Eula's infidelity, James Phillips was portrayed as an abusive drunk who forced his wife to find happiness in the arms of others. Phillips attorneys fought back, saying that none of this character assassination proved that James Phillips had killed his wife. There was no evidence to tie Phillips to the crime. The lawyers even had Phillips lay his foot over a replica of the killer's footprint that had been found at the scene. Phillips foot was much smaller. In a shocking pronouncement, the jury found James Phillips guilty. The sentence was overturned by a judge who ordered a new trial. And after that, the case against him was dropped by the state. And as quickly as they'd begun, the murder simply stopped. No one was ever held accountable for the crimes. In 1888 when Jack the Ripper began killing in London, the papers in Texas began drawing connecting lines between the crimes committed in Austin and what was happening in the largest city on earth. Scholars who have since studied the Servant Girl Annihilator case have posited several theories over who the killer might have been. In his book The Midnight Assassin, author Skip Hollinsworth speculates that the murderer might have been the son in law of Dr. James Given, who was the man who ran the Texas Lunatic Asylum, because the murders stopped shortly after Given had his son in law involuntarily committed. Or it might have been a mysterious Malaysian cook who worked near the scene of some of the murders and who in 1885 had abruptly told his employers that he was planning to relocate to London. In her 2003 book, Jack the Ripper, The American Connection, author Shirley Harrison suggests that James Maybrick, a Liverpool cotton merchant that some suspect might have been Jack the Ripper, and the purported author of a journal confessing to the Jack the Ripper killings, often traveled to the American South and could have been visiting Austin during the time of the Austin killings, thus making him capable of being both Jack the Ripper and the servant girl annihilator. History Detectives, a television show on PBS, put forth the theory that the killer might have been an Austin cook named Nathan Elgin. Elgin was said to have a club foot with a missing toe. That might explain the strange footprints that were found near some of the crimes, and the murder seemed to stop shortly after Elgin was shot to death by deputies while committing an assault. Three years later, when the murders started in London, they captivated the world, and the murders in Austin seemed to fade from memory as they were overshadowed by the legend of Jack the Ripper. Because of the London murders, many modern methods of criminal investigation were pioneered and that has led some to claim that Jack the Ripper was the first modern-day serial killer, but those methods didn't seem to make the most important difference because of course the two have something very much in common. The killer was never positively identified.
0: Interestingly, in this one, you alter the line at the end of the introduction. Instead of saying it is history that deserves to be remembered, you say it's history that should not be forgotten. Is there a story behind the decision to change that?
2: There was. uh, When I was writing this script, uh, I'm I'm always trying to be aware of the fact that uh, terrible things happen in history, and we don't necessarily want um, to remember or or to hold up as ideals um, these terrible things that happen to people, but at the same time we don't want to forget that these these things happened because if we forget then we can't prevent them from happening again. Maybe so uh, this that was a particular conversation with Lance uh, where we discussed that and I, I think he's the one who came up with that wording because I couldn't quite figure out how to put it in there. And I, I think he said, well, why don't you try writing it like this? And so he read the line out and uh, that felt right. It, it really did.
1: We tell a lot of history on The History Guy, uh, you know, very broad swath. We don't try to specialize. There's a reason to say that, you know, not every story is warm and fuzzy. And sometimes you're remembering things that you maybe don't want to remember, but there's there's good reasons to remember. And so I, I think uh, that history deserves to be remembered, good or bad, uh, even if it means remembering things that, you know, people that we don't want to venerate or or things that we'd rather not remember. I mean, if anything, it it tells us that the challenges that we face today are, are not new challenges, uh, that they're challenges that we faced in the past. And so I, I think we put that there because we knew that people would be saying, why are we remembering this? And I, you know, I think that it's important to remember.
0: Well, and if not for whoever the criminal was for the sake of the victims. People Mm -hmm. who are often forgotten in history, these were, I mean, you know, if you watch Criminal Minds, they talk about the low-risk victims. And, like, these were those kinds of people. These were fairly poor, fairly, they lived in the rougher neighborhoods. Mm -hmm.
2: Or they lived in houses slightly outside of the main property, too. So, yeah, they were they were at risk.
1: And the, the criminal, and we don't know who did it, but the criminal might very much have thought of them as less than human. Uh, you might have been targeting them because it was easy, but might have been targeting them because uh, uh, that, you know, caused less guilt. But I mean, they're they're people who died and who should be remembered, shouldn't be forgotten just because we don't like to talk about the, the, the horrendous crimes.
0: It's really interesting, if probably totally impossible to prove, that the killer in Austin and Jack the Ripper are the same person. What are your thoughts on that whole concept?
2: Well, strangely enough, I tie this concept back to an episode that you wrote about the real rats of Nim. Um, if you remember that episode, uh, you wrote about a scientific study where they had um, rats all crowded together trying to, yeah. what was it, simulate uh, like urban living. Uh, you know, everybody's living on top of each other and there's less space.
0: That's right.
2: Um, I, I don't think that it was necessarily the same person. But if we think about the circumstances surrounding both, at that time, Austin was uh, growing. Um, There were more people around than ever before. And I think people were starting to perhaps live a bit on top of one another, Um, rather like London, which has been crowded with people for, you know, as long as there's been a London almost. And um, I can't help but think that some of that was seen in, you know, these horrendous crimes, just this being piled on top of one another. And then the aggressiveness that comes with feeling like you don't have the space to be a person. Um, I don't know if that's a fair way to view it, but I can't help, but think that maybe there's a a tie there. And as for that, being the same person I don't know. I just find that kind of hard to believe. You know, I, I realized that they, they took place kind of around the same time that things stopped happening in the U.S. and started happening over, in you know, in London. But perhaps that's just the human mind trying to draw, you know, an equal sign just because we were so shocked by both of these things that happened, which prior to that, we didn't really have any crimes to compare it to. I mean, they were shocking in their violent and you know, horrific nature. Um, so maybe it was partially that. We were just kind of like, whoa, you know, this is new.
1: We weren't originating that idea, nor were we trying to make the claim. We were simply saying that there are other authors uh, who study both, who have tried to make those connections and came up with some ideas. And actually, we had some pushback in the comments. Uh, there's nothing more studied, really, than who was Jack the Ripper. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest historical questions. <laughs> yeah. Anybody, ever... and there's a thousand different theories, and everybody's sure their theory is right, and they get mad if you produce any other theory. And that's what we're, we weren't trying to do. That we were trying to show that there are various different theories from people that include those theories because there is, you know, temporally, just the fact that you know the the time connection between the two is is interesting at least. It gives you reasons to ask the question. So, uh, I, I'm not going to try to answer who was Jack the Ripper, nor I'm going to try to answer whether the servant Girl Annihilator and Jack the Ripper were the same person. I can't say that it is an interesting historical question. It's interesting that it's been asked. And it's one of the reasons that people study history is to try to answer questions like that. And so it's, it's uh, if you are a, a, what do they call them? Ripper, ripperologist, I think. Ripperologist, I think is what they're yeah. Uh, if you wow. are a ripperologist, wow. you spend your life, you know, trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper was. I mean, it's a fascinating discussion. There's a reason why that unsolved mystery has compelled people. Mm. And this just becomes another part of that unsolved mystery. So I I don't know if anyone will ever definitively answer who Jack the Ripper was, more or less that that he was also the the servant girl annihilator. Uh, But what I can say is that it shows how compelling history is that we're still asking those questions. And I think we would have been remiss to talk about this much less known killing spree in Texas if we didn't talk about that that connection that people have made to a much better known killing spree in, in the United Kingdom.
0: Like Heidi said, you know, people want to make these connections. They want to, you want to believe that that there's there's these linear mysteries. And so him being the same person means you don't have to explain how you know how this happened in two different places. But maybe that had more to do with changes at the time. And when we talked about the the rats of Nim thing, that it was a very significant shift from how humans had been living essentially for you know millennia. You know, maybe this was people reacting to similar stresses in similar ways, and that's a little harder to explain. and a little harder to face. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.